0: Thank you, choir. If you have a copy of God's word, please take it and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. We have been making our way through the book of Daniel and we have come to chapter 5. We've been looking at the book of Daniel as we've come to understand the theme being that this is the historical account of God's people living. In exile you'll remember that at this point in history, the nation of Babylon, strongest nation at the time, has come in and has taken captive and defeated the nation of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. They've destroyed Judah, they've destroyed Jerusalem, and they've taken back captive some of the people of Jerusalem. And they've done so with four specific youths that this passage of scripture in this book focuses on Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the last three more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four young men have been taken from their homes, taken from everything familiar to them, and taken to a foreign, hostile land where they are living as aliens and pilgrims. The significance of this for us as the church in 2016 is to acknowledge that we too are also a people living in exile we too are aliens and pilgrims living in our American exile. We acknowledge as the church that this place is ultimately not our home, that God's kingdom, his plans and purposes are ultimately where we will rest. And so as we've watched Daniel and his friends interact, as we've watched them remain faithful in the midst of persecution and difficulty, we've drawn strength and insight into how we are to remain faithful as the church in exile today. One of the themes that's kind of run through the book of Daniel very interestingly is that Daniel has the ability to discern and understand and interpret dreams and mysteries, right? Uh, Daniel's been able to make complex mysteries and dreams very clear and simple. One of the things that Daniel has done in this process, back in chapter 2, Daniel interpreted a dream that God had given Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, that it was predicting the rise and the fall of four successive kingdoms. And specifically, Daniel told the king that at the time, he needed to understand that one day the kingdom of Babylon would be removed and another kingdom would be taken in its place. So when we come to chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, decades have passed since that prophecy has been made. Nebuchadnezzar, the king that brought Daniel into captivity, has died, and a new king has come to the throne named Belshazzar. But as this new king has come to the throne, he's come with kind of an ominous kind of cloud over him. Because not only is there this prophecy that one day his kingdom will be supplanted and taken from him, but the Persian army has been decimating the Babylonians through a series of battles. So if you think Persia and Babylon, you're thinking modern-day Iran and modern-day Iraq, right? Modern-day Iran, Persia has defeated the Babylonians time after time. And when we get to chapter 5, verse 1, historians tell us that the Persian army was literally surrounding Babylon. They were literally knocking on the door of the capital of Babylon. I want you to watch what happens in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, as the Persian army has surrounded them, and this prophecy looms over their heads? Would you please stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1? Daniel 5, verse 1, we read these words. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you pray with me, please? God, in these moments, would you remove distraction? Would you speak to every heart here? And would you help us, Lord, not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers? God, illumine our minds and our hearts now. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know about you, but if a rival, hostile Enemy army was surrounding me. I could think of a lot of things that I might do. Coupled that with the fact that there's a prophecy hanging over my head that one day my kingdom is going to be removed and a new king is going to be installed in my place. If that were me, I might pray, huh? You might pray, you might spend some time praying to God, saying, God, please let me defeat the Persian army, let me uh, let my kingdom endure just a little bit longer. Some of you might take a practical approach. You might say, well, I'd I'd get my military strategists together and I'd talk about how we'd repel this oncoming barbaric onslaught that's coming from the Persian army. But as you read a moment ago, the king does neither of these things. Instead, he throws a party. Seems like a reasonable thing to do, doesn't it? I don't know. Rome is burning and you're throwing a party. The Bible tells us in verse 1, look at your Bibles, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. So you're probably talking about several thousand people that are at this party, okay? Party progresses, the king is there, and as a way to try to instill confidence in his lords and his military leaders, he decides he's going to pull out some of the spoils of war. See, in this day and age when a, a king would be victorious, right, they would take goods and and riches, and jewels, and things from a a conquered people, and they would keep them. And at times, they would bring them back out to display how strong, and how powerful, and how mighty they really were. And so with this prophecy of his kingdom being taken away from him, Persian army around his doors, he decides he wants to remind his generals that they defeated the God who made this prophecy. So what does he do? The Bible tells us that he pulled out some of the vessels, the instruments that were used to worship God from the temple in Jerusalem. Now You'll remember Old Testament time in Jerusalem at this point in time. This is where the temple was, at least previously, and it's where God's unique presence was said to dwell. It's where the kind of centerpiece of worship happened for the nation of Israel. And it's where they offered sacrifices, right, that were portraying and picturing ultimately the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These are holy things. These are sacred things. These are things that pointed to God's goodness and greatness. And Belshazzar, this king, with the Persian army around his door and the prophecy over his head, brings them out. And verse 4 tells us they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let me be clear about what's happening here. Okay, I don't want you to lose this, what's going on here. What's, what's happening here is the king is shaking his fist at God and saying, Yeah, I know the Persians are knocking on my door. Yeah, I know you made this prophecy. But after all, by my might and my power, and my nation's might and my power, we defeated Jerusalem and their God. He's defying God. So what happens? Look at your Bibles at verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. How many of you have ever heard the colloquialism, that was the handwriting on the wall? How many of you have ever heard that? That was the writing on the wall. When you hear somebody say that, they are quoting Daniel chapter 5. It means the end is near. Because what happened, as soon as he brought these vessels from the temple, as soon as he started worshiping false gods with them and defying the true God, a hand appears. Miraculously, ominously, these fingers just show up in the middle of the king's palace, and they begin to write on the wall. The Bible tells us that the king became so afraid that he literally began to shake uncontrollably. You ever been that afraid? That scared that you couldn't stop shaking because something was so terrifying to you? That's what the king is experiencing. So this is not a pleasant picture. This was an ominous picture, because the king knew with this prophecy over his head, the Persian army around his doors, this can't be good. So what does he do? He does what all the kings of Babylon do. He calls together his magicians, his astrologers, people that were skilled in witchcraft, black magic. And after studying and examining the writing on the wall, they are totally unable to figure out what it means. This is a theme, a sub-theme running through the book of Daniel, Every single time these guys are called together, they can't deliver. They can't understand the things of God. The best human attempt to understand spiritual mysteries falls short and in the book of Daniel is consistently shown to be deficient. So, what happens? The king becomes more afraid. His lords are concerned. The Persian armies around their gates, the prophecy over their heads. The queen mother shows up and says, Hey, there's this guy that you, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, brought from Jerusalem. His name is Daniel. He's interpreted a few dreams for us in the past. Why don't you bring him out of the bullpen and see what he can do? At this point in time, Daniel's probably about 80 years old. Decades have passed since Daniel first arrived, and his history, his reputation kind of goes before him. Before I get to what Daniel said, I want to make sure we're seeing exactly what's going on here, okay? I want to sum this up very simply. What's happening here is the pride of this king is colliding with the promise of God. The prideful defiance of the king is coming into collision with the prophecy and the promise that God made. What Daniel chapter five is about, it's about answering this simple question: Will human pride prevail? Will the strength and the might of Babylon undo what God has promised? Or will God's promise hold fast? That's what the book of Daniel chapter 5 is about. What we're about to see is the answer. What I want you to watch as we read verses 17 through the end of the chapter is this is the theme I want you to watch for. I want you to watch for the destruction of pride and I want you to watch for the victory of promise. I want you to watch for the downfall of pride and the victory of promise. Look at verse 17 in your Bibles, and watch how this theme plays itself out as Daniel is called in. Previously, the king had offered riches and jewels and authority to who could ever answer this question, and so Daniel in verse 17 answers. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, "'Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your reward to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation.'" O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Verse 20, this is Daniel talking to the king. Watch this. But when his heart was lifted up, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways, You have not honored. Verse 24, church. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. This is still Daniel talking to the king. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with a purple robe, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, watch this very closely, church. Watch verse 30. That very night, so the same night, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede, who was also a Persian, received the kingdom. Being about 62 years old. Daniel starts this interpretation by reminding him of the failures of kings in the past. He says, Look, pride has been a perennial issue for the kings of Babylon. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel tells him, was driven crazy because of his pride. In fact, Daniel tells him he went out of his mind and became like an animal. And if you want more on that, you can read chapter 4. That's where Daniel records what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells him, look, decades have gone by since then, and you haven't learned, king. You're still pridefully exalting yourself. And so he interprets for him the writing on the wall. He tells him, look, here's what those three words mean. They mean that your days have been numbered, your kingdom has been divided, and it will be given to this other king. You've been found wanting as you've been weighed. Here's the point. That very night, the very thing that God said was going to happen happened. Persian army around their doors, prophecy over their heads. Persians break down the doors, kill the king, and install the Persian as the new king. What's important for you and I is that we recognize the very thing that God said was going to happen in chapter two happened in chapter five. Here's the principle. Pride brings destruction, but God's promises bring victory. The principle that you and I need to take home with us this morning is that pride brings destruction, but God's promises ultimately bring blessing and victory. Let me break that down for us. Pride brings destruction. Pride is exaltation of self based on deception. It's based on a lie. See, these kings, both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, thought that their kingdom was there because of their strength and their might, their power. They exalted themselves based on a deception, based on a lie that wasn't true. And so because they built their lives around this prideful deception, when the final moment came, destruction came into their lives because they had been deceived into thinking that their kingdom was there because of their power and might. God shows them very clearly that it was not because of their strength or power or might that they were there. God had installed them there for a purpose, and they failed to see that. When we boast in pride and deception, we invite destruction into our lives. I don't know how many of you remember the name Bernie Madoff. How many of you remember Bernie Madoff, that name? Some of you do. Bernie Madoff for years was heralded as a financial genius, right? People gave this guy money in droves, and he was proclaimed to be this financial guru that was, had this foolproof system that if you gave him certain money, a certain level of return was required. It was going to happen, no questions asked. And so for years and years and years, people gave this guy thousands, millions of dollars, only to find out later that his entire financial scheme, his entire financial plan, was based on a lie. He was running what's commonly known as a Ponzi scheme, right? The money that you were getting back in return actually was somebody else's money that they were using to invest with him. And for years, he played this shell game based on deception until one day, everything came crashing down around him. Bernie Madoff's now in prison because his whole life had been built around this prideful deception that invited destruction into his life. What I want to tell you this morning is that every single human being on the planet, past, present, future, has also embraced a form of prideful deception in our lives. Every one of us enter this world pridefully deceived into thinking that we are the main characters of our own little stories. We all think that life is about us. We all think that we get to decide right and wrong, good and evil for ourselves. We come into this world boastfully declaring that all the things that we've been given are actually there because of our strength, our might, our power. This past week at one of the major political conventions in our country, there was thunderous applause given when a woman stood and told her story of an abortion wasn't an abortion uh, from rape or incest or because of endangerment to the life of the mother, which is where these things often focus, the kind of the conversation focuses. She stood up and declared that she had had an abortion out of convenience because it wasn't the right time for her family. And people cheered, shouted, applauded. And so my question as I watch things like that in our culture is, how have we gotten to a place where destroying life in the womb, an unborn child, an innocent How have we gotten to a place where that is celebrated? And I'll tell you the answer. The answer is we have so exalted human autonomy, self-determination, that anything else is fair game. We have said you get to define your gender, you get to define your sexual preference, you get to define whether a life within you lives or dies. All based on your own determination of right and wrong, good and evil. The prideful deception that is at work today in our culture is showing up in some of the scariest of places because we don't see that we don't get to decide right and wrong for ourselves. We don't get to decide good and evil for ourselves. Those are things fixed by our Creator. The same prideful deception that Belshazzar fell into in thinking that his kingdom was there because of his might and power, is the same prideful deception we bought into that makes us think we get to define right and wrong for ourselves. But let me tell you the good news. Can I tell you some good news this morning? Some good news that while pride brings destruction, God offers sweet, beautiful promises to us. And the promises God offers us offer us a way out of this prideful deception. I want to show you three dimensions to God's promises in this passage of Scripture very quickly. Number one, I want to show you that God's promises are fixed and irrevocable. The promises of God are sure, and you can count on them. Okay, Daniel chapter 2, God makes a promise. You read ahead three chapters. Chapter 5, the promise is fulfilled. The reason this is important for us is because there are many promises God has made to us as believers today that we've not yet seen fulfilled right God's made promises to us today that we've not yet seen fulfilled. One of the ways we trust God's promises that we've not yet seen fulfilled is by looking back at the promises that he's already made that have come to Can I tell you one of the promises we have got to hold on to today very clearly, very confidently? We have to hold on to the promise that Christ Jesus' risen Lord is returning one day. Amen? We have to hold on to the promise that one day Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom, his rule, and his reign on this earth in a unique and a special way. But there are other promises that we hold on to. We hold on to the promise that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It has been my joy and privilege as a pastor to watch members of this church finish their race well. I have watched men and women from their deathbed with hours, maybe days to live, look at me and say, I'm not afraid to die. Looking at Kathy in the back, I remember her dad, John DeGraffenreid, looking at me. Just days before he passed away, and I, just with everything that he had in him left, he wasn't able to talk very well. He looked at me and he said, "Spencer, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid." He knew he was going to die. He knew what was going on in his life, and he said, "I'm not afraid." And he didn't say this in this conversation, but I replayed previous conversations with John where he would look at me and he would say, Spencer, I know whom I have believed in. I know who I have believed in, and I believe that his promise to save me from my sin and to, take, to me, take me where he is, that I may be with him, is going to come to pass. How can I look death in the face and say, I'm trusting God's promise? It is because I'm reminded of past promises and past fulfillment of God's goodness and grace. Number two, God's promises ensure sovereignty over kings and kingdoms. Daniel 5 shows us that God's promises include sovereignty, control over kings and kingdoms. God installed Nations and he removes them. God installed the Assyrians for a time before the Babylonians. They were a powerhouse in the world at the time. They are the ones who took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. The Assyrians were there for a while and God removed them and he installed the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the ones that came in and took the southern kingdom away as a form of judgment and into captivity. God established the Babylonians for a while. He removed them and establishes the Persians. Persians, therefore for a time, part of the special and unique purpose for which God used them was to allow the nation of Israel to come back to the promised land 70 years after captivity and rebuild the temple of praise. God removes the Persians, ultimately installs the Greeks, Alexander the Great. He establishes a great nation that covers almost all of the known world. He establishes one common language. Think of the genius of God allowing that to happen so that when the New Testament was written, it was written in common Greek so that everyone could read it. Then God removes the Greeks and he installs the Romans. It's from the Roman government, the Roman authority, that they invent the cruelest form of torture ever invented. It's on the backdrop of the sovereign hand of God installing and removing kings and kingdoms that his precious son, steps onto human history that stage and he dies on that Roman cross taking our judgment and shame God installs rulers and authorities, kings and kingdoms can I tell you why that's so important for you and for me this morning that we remember that it's important because between now and November there's a good chance all of us could go crazy you can laugh it's okay It could happen. Uh, With 300 million people in this country, the best we can come up with is Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It's true. You you may be really ardently supporting Donald Trump. You may be ardently supporting Hillary. But if I just get you like one-on-one, eye-to-eye, and we're just talking, just me and you, come on, let's be honest. Didn't you think we could do better than that? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. And so... There's going to be a lot that's going to happen. August, September, October. There's a lot that can happen in three months. But it's going to be very easy to get lost in the craziness of it. Should we vote for Donald? Should we vote for Hillary? What about Supreme Court justices? My goodness, two or three probably going to be appointed to the next presidential term. What about ISIS? Terrorist activity. Every time I punch my phone, somebody's getting blown up or killed. What about foreign policy? What about education? What about the economy? It is going to be so easy to get caught up in the maelstrom of the political cycle of the next three months. Can I tell you what will keep your feet on the ground, what will keep you joyful and thankful even amidst the craziness around us? It will be remembering that God sovereignly moves and establishes and removes kings and kingdoms. That's going to be what keeps our feet on the ground. Not your persuasive argument about which candidate to vote for, and I've heard them all. We're going to need wisdom like we've never needed it before as the church the next three months. But what we need more than wisdom is a remembrance of the sovereign hand of God establishing and removing kings and kingdoms. Number three, and finally, God's promises offer forgiveness and grace. God's promises offer us forgiveness and grace. I said a moment ago that all of us have embraced prideful deception. Every human being on the planet has embraced a form of prideful deception that puts us as the main character. We've all done that. And that shows up in our lives through this thing called sin, right? Where we disobey our parents, where we lie, we steal, we we look at others with lust or hatred in our hearts. All of these things are manifestations of of the deception of our hearts. And what Romans 6.23 makes very clear is that the wage of this sin is death. We deserve a penalty of death. Because of our deception and our sin. But the sweet, beautiful promise of God is that He's made a way out for us. He's made a way out for our prideful deception and destruction because the rest of that verse says that while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How how is God able to remove us from the destruction that we should get because of our deception? God removes you and I from destruction by pouring all of what you and I should have gotten on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes all of what you and I should have gotten on himself. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he rises again to say, I'm not just taking your penalty. I'm defeating your penalty. And the sweet, beautiful promise God offers you today is that you and I can be forgiven of all of our pride, all of our deception, and we can be restored to forgiven and redeemed. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to be reminded and remember the sweet, beautiful promise of God, to remember that Christ Jesus took our place, that he offered his life in ours. And so for those of you that are Christians, those of you that are believers, I'm going to pray that in a few moments as we take this, that it would be a reminder, but that we would all be freshly affected. Our hearts would remember the sweet, beautiful promise that God has made to us and the victory that we share in in Christ through that promise. But I also recognize in a group this size, in a room this size, that there may be some of you here that aren't Christians today. You know, one of my hardest jobs as a pastor in America in 2016 is trying to help people understand what it means to be a Christian. Trying to convince people who think they're Christians that they're not. And the last thing I want to do is try to convince a believer that they're not a believer, but I would never want to hesitate from saying this. You you don't become a Christian because your grandparents were Christians or your parents were Christians. You don't become a Christian just because one time you had this emotional experience and you prayed some little phrase. You become a Christian when you repent. That's you turn from sin and you being the main character and you trust Christ. Now that can happen through a prayer. That can happen in a very emotional experience. But never forget, just like you have a physical birthday, April 29th, 1982. All of us also are called to have a spiritual birthday, a moment in time when we cross the line of faith and we go all in on Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you're here. We would hold out the promise of God's grace and forgiveness to you today. But we want you to know that this meal we're about to take is just for those of you that have accepted Christ. If you're not not a believer, we're going to ask you not to take this with us. Not because we don't love you, but because we do. We want this meal to be a testimony to you of your need for Christ. But as coming to Christ and baptism is kind of like a wedding ceremony, you declaring your love for Christ, the Lord's Supper is our time to renew our vows. So we come to the table and we say, God, thank you for what you've done for me. If you're not a Christian, you can't renew a vow that you've never made. So my prayer for you this morning is if you don't know Christ, that you would repent and that you would trust him for salvation. You would turn your life over to him. But for those of you that do know Christ, that this will be a time we can all come together and be freshly affected. Remember, pride and sowing pride means we reap destruction. But when we trust the sweet, beautiful promises of God, we share in the victory Christ has won for us on the cross. Would you pray with me, please?